Well, good morning, church. Morning, how are you going? Uh, so I'm uh, Pastor Pete. I'm the uh, lead pastor of our church. It's so good. Even this morning, I've met uh, a few new people. So if you've just joined us today, if you're still checking out our church or Jesus, special welcome to you and what a great morning to come. Not only do you get free lunch, we're also starting a new uh, sermon series. Now I've got a confession to make, and it's this. I hate cats. And nothing you see on that screen behind me will change my opinion of cats. Now, I don't care how cute they are, these kittens. The truth is I'm completely unmoved because I don't like cats. Are, are there any cat people here? Come on, don't be ashamed. There's like, there's one. I, I really don't like cats. I'll, I'll tell you why I don't like cats. Well, firstly, I'm allergic to cats, so they cause me near death, basically. But, you know, it's, it's that, but it's, it's, it's also cats are selfish creatures, yeah? Right? They're not insecure like dogs who need your love. They don't care about you. Right? They really, they're like princesses. They're entitled. You're there for them. If they're unhappy, well, you know. But I reckon the thing that I really, really dislike about cats is this. At the end of the day, cats, especially once they've grown up, right, not kittens, cats are ruthless predators. They really are. So our neighbors have cats. And they're always hanging around outside our guinea pig cages. And it's a good thing we have cages. Because I know if those cages were open, they would pounce and kill and destroy those guinea pigs and eat them. And occasionally, we've got lovely birds around, like native Australian birds, like rainbow lorikeets. Do you know how beautiful those birds? Well, the neighbor's cat kills them, and we find dead birds around. And this neighbor's cat is such a good predator, in a bad way, I mean, it has a bell. So it's not like our neighbors didn't put a bell. It still manages to kill the native wildlife. I really don't like cats. I don't know about you. Even domesticated cats, I think, we see, show their roots, don't we? Yeah, at the end of the day, they're predators. Honestly, I really don't mind that much. I'm just overstating it. So if you really like cats, please don't be offended. Go for your life. Um, the point I'm trying to make is even um, little household cats show the fact that deep down inside, there's a part of them that can't be domesticated. Right? They're still predators. They'll still hunt wildlife. Well, how much more so the big wild cats? You know the ones I'm talking about, right? Panthers, cheetahs, uh, tigers, and especially the king of the jungle, the lion. You see, don't ever think you can domesticate a lion. And if you're in any doubt of that, only last year, an Egyptian lion tamer was mauled to death in a circus while people were watching in horror, and some, people, some person obviously had the time to film it. Right? You cannot tame a lion. Now, for shepherds in the ancient world, uh, predators really don't come bigger and scarier than lions. You can imagine that. You're looking after your flock. You're in the wilderness. The worst thing that could happen is a lion comes and rips through and kills all the sheep and probably you in the process. Now, why am I mentioning lions? Well, it's because the primary image for God in the book of Amos is a lion. 
Now you see it there. We're actually going to cover the whole of Amos 1 and 2. We just didn't read one for a time's sake. But I'd like you to keep your Bibles open because we are going to be looking from chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. You can imagine sound effects to be nice here at this point in time, but I don't have that prepared. But the Lord roars from Zion. It's the capital uh, where the temple is. He roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel, which is a mountain, withers. You see what it's saying there? The Lord God is not a cute, domesticated kitty cat. He is a roaring pouncing, big, powerful, scary lion. And in the book of Amos in particular, this lion is roused and ready and roaring. Through these nine chapters of Amos over the next few weeks, we will meet a God, quite frankly, that we will prefer to ignore. He's a God that we find uncomfortable to view, to see. A God who comes thundering in judgment. Has your God become more like a kitten than a lion? Chances are yes. I know that's the case with me often, isn't it? And when was the last time you really felt the weight of God's majesty and experienced a mix of awe and fear and wonder? If that's you, then you need to meet the lion of Amos. So let me pray and let's get into this passage. Father God, please help me. Do justice to your word in Amos. Please, by your Spirit, reveal the truth about yourself as a God we may not be comfortable with all the time, but a God who is far bigger, far more just and awesome, and perhaps a God with whom we need to do business today. Please do that so that we can see you clearly, honor you, live for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few points in your outlines. You can... Follow. Uh, First thing I want to do is just set the scene a little bit. So go back to chapter 1, verse 1, and have a look at how Amos introduces the book. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. Okay, where are we? We're in the first half of the 8th century BC, get your minds around that, it's the 700s BC, these two kings, Uzziah and uh, Jeroboam, they both reigned between the periods of 790 BC and 740 BC. So we're sometime in that region. Uh, You need to know that uh, God's people were divided into two. It used to be one nation, the nation of Israel, uh, and especially in the golden age of of King David, you might have heard of his son, wise King Solomon. Uh, That was the golden age. That was about a thousand BC, a few hundred years before. That was one nation. But then after Solomon, wise Solomon turned into foolish Solomon. But after him, the the kingdom splits. Uh, Here's a confusing part, because one part still is called Israel, but that's the northern kingdom, with its capital Samaria. And the southern part of the kingdom that splits is now called Judah, all right? And its capital is Jerusalem. So here we have the first half of the 8th century is where we're at. Two countries, though, they're divided, and these two kings. Now, the thing about this is, this was a time of actually uh, prosperity. Uh, Things were going pretty well, relatively peaceful at this time in the first half of the 8th century BC. Um, The borders of these two countries, if you combine them, uh, they're split, but if you look at their borders, they really have been the greatest since Solomon's day. So it was as good as it got 
in the split kingdom. And it was a lot of stability and a lot of peace. And because of that, there was a new wealthy upper class in the cities. So, so you know, people who live in Double Bay and Watson's Bay and Vaucluse, you know, the people, wealthy people in Sydney, the upper class of Sydney, well, that's the kind of, uh, the wealthy people started to grow in these two uh, nations of Judah and Israel. So things were going well. And then we meet Amos. Amos was not part of the uh, upper class. Um, he might have had reasonable wealth. Um, he's a shepherd, but there's a chance that he's not the kind of on-the-field shepherd. He might have been a managing shepherd of other shepherds. But even so, he wasn't part of the elite. Now, where is he from? He's from Tekoa. Now, Tekoa, we know, is in the southern kingdom, right? Tekoa is a few miles south of, I think, Bethlehem. But here's the thing. Even though he was from the south, Amos is going to primarily prophesy and speak against the north. Right, the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, not Judah, the south. But the shepherd thing works because you'll read Amos, and so much of his words, his ideas are drawn from the uh, experience of shepherds. So even the whole lion thing, right? There's a lot of images about those who work in the midst of nature and work with animals. And if, as you read it, you'll, you'll get familiar with that too. But the point is, Amos was a pretty ordinary guy. There's nothing really special about him. And we'll meet him later on. He wasn't a, a son of a prophet. He wasn't part of the royal family. Um, he didn't have a special office or title. He was just an ordinary guy with a blue-collar job. But God takes this ordinary guy, and what's he going to do now? He's going to put his words into him. And because of that, everything changes. Chapters 1 and 2 come in two parts. And we're going to look at it in the next two points, right? Point two and point three. The first part will start on judgment on the nations, the surrounding nations. So we're going to meet six foreign nations starting in chapter one, verse three, and it'll take us all the way to chapter two, verse three. Now we're going to look at it fairly, you know, quickly because of time, but you'll notice if you just scan it, there's a, there's a similar a pattern, a formula, isn't there? Uh, each one will, will name the nations. But it'll start with a preface that says, For three sins of, even for four, I will not relent. You see that? Yeah? All those verses will start the same way. And then it'll give a reason. Right? This is the reason why. Because. And you've got a few reasons why. And then you'll have a few verses about judgment. Right? I will do this. I will do that. You've got the preface, the reason, the judgment. So we're just going to do an overview. So I just want to look at it in terms of the who, what, so the who, why, and what. All right, the who, why, and what. So the who. First, six nations. Let's meet them. I've got there a map. And the order that you're going to meet the, uh, the judgment oracles are going to start from chapter 1, verse 3. Firstly, it's going to be Damascus, all right, which is the kingdom of Aram, or sometimes called Syria. Then you're going to go Gaza, which is one of the cities of the Philistines. Then you've got Tyre which is up here, which is the, the cities of the Phoenician seafaring by the Mediterranean. So they're known for being seafarers, the Phoenician states. Then we're going to meet Edom, which is down here, Moab, Ammon, or Ammon, and then Moab, okay? And these six nations. Broadly, they're, they're kind of, you know, if you like to think about it, it starts in the northeast, then it goes across to the southwest, then it goes up to the northwest, then it basically will come down to the southeast, and the east. But essentially, these were the major foreign powers that were exactly surrounding. So the kingdom of Israel, right, is here. That's the nation we're primarily going to meet. But they're basically the nation surrounding 
Israel. Okay, so that's the who. What about the why? why what's God's reasons? Okay? If you read them all, and we don't have time to read them all in detail, you're going to see that they're primarily about war crimes. You got that? War crimes. So just quickly, um, Damascus uh, or Aram or Syria, uh, they're, they're, they're being um, judged because they threshed Gilead. Now, Gilead, um, I don't think it's there. It's going to be somewhere up the north of Israel. It's one of their cities or towns. Now, the idea of threshing is what you do to grain to separate the, uh, the wheat, you know, the grain from the husk. Right? And, and you, you thresh wheat manually by basically beating it with all your might. Or, you know, they'll have machines that do that. But basically, we'll, I think the, um, the, the modern equivalent of, of the idea of a thresher is sort of like a steamroller. You know, these things with massive wheels that just kind of... Right? That's what they did. They steamrolled Gilead. It's the idea of merciless, complete destruction. If you know your World War II history, it's sort of what the Japanese did to Nanjing. Or Nanking, right? That's threshing, destroying. And then you've got um, the, the next two, um, the Philistine city of Gaza and also Tyre, the Phoenician city. Both of them are being judged because they sold as captives whole communities. Now, you know what that's talking about, right? That's a slave trading, slave trafficking. Now, you capture civilians, you take them as bounty, you sell, and particularly you sell the women and children. So now you want to think about ISIS, you want to think about Al-Shabaab in Africa, you know, when they kidnap the girls and sell them as sex slaves, that's the kind of war crime we're talking about. Then you've got the next two nations, Edom and Ammon. Uh, they both have crimes against weak and defenseless, particularly mentioning women, right? Women civilians. Back then, women didn't fight in battle, so women are always going to be civilians, innocent civilians. Well, we're told that they slaughtered them. We're even told this, Pretty horrible image, right? They ripped open pregnant women. What a horrible image, but that's the kind of things they did. And then last of all, Moab, which we did read in chapter 2, um, they desecrated the bones of the dead. All right? So they basically, it's, it's sort of like Vikings, I heard, used to drink from the skulls of their enemies. Right? It's, 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 it's that kind of thing. It's, it's another kind of horrible war crime. Now at this point, I want to say that the Bible has realistic expectations about war in a fallen world. There are those who think that if you are a, a Bible-believing Christian, that uh, there's no circumstances in which war is ever okay. That, that's called pacifism. Right? And some really godly people have believed that in the past. Now, I, I'm not really sure that if you understand the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, and understand the world, that it would necessarily lead you to pacifism in every circumstance. I think a lot of the wars, maybe the majority of the wars we fight are stupid wars, shouldn't be fought, unjust. But I think there are situations in which wars can be the best of a bad situation. Even so, even so, the Bible is very clear. How war is conducted is very, very serious. Right? How it's done, even if it is the best of a bad situation. When it comes to God's view of war in a fallen world, the ends never justifies the means. We should care deeply about war crimes and the methods, for example, that we don't even know about. The methods used to extract information. The collateral damage that's often not reported. Civilians getting harmed. Those things matter to God. 
So that's the first thing, just a little side note about war. But the next thing I want you to notice is this. You notice that God does not judge any of these nations for breaking His laws. No mention of God's laws. No mention of the Ten Commandments. Do you notice that? He judges them for acts against humanity, for war crimes, for common understandings of right and wrong, for going against human compassion and decency. That's what he judges them against. It's, it's, it's also for breaking bonds of brotherhood and treaties. That's what he goes and judges them for, but not for breaking his laws, not for breaking his commandments. Now, this is important because this is completely consistent with the Bible's picture of judgment. When it comes to judgment, you've got to know God is just. He judges you based on what you know, not on what you don't know. Do you see? And Romans tells us, in a passage like Romans 1, look at that. It says, The wrath of God, the anger of God, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. But notice this. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. How do they know? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood, right? not because they've received the Bible, not because they've got the Ten Commandments, no, no, from what has been made, which means that they're now without excuse. God does not judge people based on what they don't know, but based on what they do know. So often people ask, how will God judge those who don't have an opportunity to hear the Bible hear about Jesus? Well, the answer is this. He will judge them based on what He has revealed to them. And from Romans 1, it's nature. It's looking around. It's their inner moral code. It's their consciences. He will be just. He will judge them based on that. But even so, I need you to know that nowhere in the Bible does that say that that will lead to good news. Okay? You might think, well, that, that excuses, you know, people living in the deep, deepest, darkest tribes of Africa or Papua New Guinea or whatever. Well, you know, when the Bible talks about Romans 1, it's always bad news because though God will judge them based on what they do know, the outcome isn't going to be great. Why? Because God sees and knows everything. Every hidden crime, like these nations and what they did in war. Every hidden motivation. Every hidden sin. God sees and knows everything. He will judge them based on that. Now, the other thing you notice uh, is that formula, right? For three sins of Damascus and even for four. And what does that mean? That's always confused me. Um, let me try and explain it. I think it's a poetic way of saying, I'm not going to relent, okay? Because it says, for three sins of and for four, I will not relent. If I had to paraphrase it, it's something like this. God is saying, I'm not going to relent, which means to turn back from my judgment. I'm not going to relent from my judgment because I've been watching and I've been counting. I think that's what it means. I'm not going to turn away from my judgment because I've been watching and counting. Why three and four? Three and four is maybe a nice poetic way of saying God is keeping tabs. Also, if you like numbers, three, and three plus four happens to be seven. And there's a thing about seven in the Bible, so maybe it's that. All right? But the point is that even though the wheels of justice often turn slowly, and the Bible does say God is slow to anger, we must never mistake His patience as neglect. God knows. God sees. Here's a scary thought. God is counting. 
And one day he will make a complete account and accounting of every sin. That's the message of Amos. So that's the why. Well, quickly, what about the what? What is the well, there's a repeated judgment. If you want to find a common thing, I will set fire is probably the big repeated one. On their cities, on their walls, on their fortresses, on their palaces. It's pretty fitting that fire is used as an image for judgment because fire, like lions, you can't tame a raging fire, can you? I mean, just ask any SES volunteer during bushfire season. They can try and control it, contain it, but more often than not, it's just crazy, out of control. God's judgment is like that. Untamable, fierce, hot. It's also pretty clear, if you want to read those verses again, that it is God who will do it. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. See, through the course of history, you'll need to know that all of these nations get wiped out. I mean, you will not have a modern state of Edom, Moab, Ammon, Phoenicia, Philistia, all right, or Aram. They all get wiped out. And that happens actually in a few short decades from the time Amos was speaking it because Assyria is this big giant power that's going to come from the north and northeast and it's going to come rolling along, destroy them all. But you need to know that even though historically these nations have disappeared, Amos's point is don't make a mistake that this is just the natural course of history, okay? It's God who did it. God is controlling all the pieces on the chessboard. God uses Assyria as a tool, and then we'll use Babylonia as a tool, and then we'll use Persia as a tool, and then Greece, and then Rome, and then you keep going. God is the one control of history. All right, let me summarize. This first part, you've got six foreign nations, they're surrounding God's people, you remember, and they're targeted one by one. You can imagine the, you know, uh, the bullseye just kind of going, beep, 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 all the all you gamers, you'll know what I mean. Um, and ancient historians have said they, they're, they're a little bit like, these bits are like war oracles. You know what a war oracle is? It's the kind of thing in the ancient world that prophets and seers and those special kind of um, crazy people will say uh, to, to G up the troops before battle. All right? So they'll come and they're about to face Moab and then something like the Moab bit would come out to G up their troops. Now, you can imagine, just imagine with me, you are one of the Israelites, and you're reading chapters 1 through to chapter 2, verse 3, and you're hearing all these judgments. Can you imagine how you'd be feeling, right? Because all of these nations, by the way, Edom, Ammon, Moab, Philistia, all of them, they have been threatening and harming Israel all throughout their history. So you can imagine how you'd be feeling, right, as you hear God turn His attention of judgment against them in a war oracle sort of thing. It'd be like my children, who secretly delight when they see their siblings get in trouble. Yeah, you know they do, right? They're copying it from mom and dad, and you're thinking, yes, yes, more. Stick it to them, stick it to them. That's what Israel was thinking. God is thundering against Edom. Oh, yeah, come on, let Edom have it. Yeah, let Moab have it. Yeah, that's what they're thinking. But then the oracle turns. And it begins to turn towards God's own people. Firstly, Judah in the south. Now, you're an Israelite of the north, so you're thinking, okay, it's getting a little bit uncomfortable here, but Judah do deserve it too, because they've been at war as well. Then, of course, in chapter 2, later on, it targets Israel itself. This is the big reveal. This is part of Amos's strategy. 
gets them all comfortable, lulls them into a false sense of security, and then bammo, God's fiercest words of judgment are reserved for them. So point number three is judgment on God's nations. God's nations. All right, the order was six nations, and then the seventh is Judah. So maybe there's a seventh thing going on here. But the final nation is Israel itself. The rest of the book of Amos is actually going to be directed on Israel. Now, we know who Israel are, but these verses also tell us why they're special to God. So go to chapter 2, verse 10 to 11. We just get a glimpse again of why God cares so much about this people. Chapter 2, verse 10. I brought you up out of Egypt, led you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites, their special holy people, right? Nazarites from among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel? You see what it's saying? You're not just any nation. You are my treasured possession and people. You've received of all nations on the earth the most love, the most grace. But here's the thing, and we'll come back to this again and again in Amos. God's grace is not to be abused. Grace should lead to lives of thankfulness and trust and faithfulness. Not the attitude of, well, I can do whatever I want now and get away with it because I'm special. It doesn't work like that. See, receiving more grace makes you more culpable, answerable to God. The more you know, the more you are held to account. See, the nations we saw are not judged on the basis of God's law, but Judah and Israel are. So you look at what it says about Judah. Amos chapter 2, verse 4. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent, because they have what? Rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept His decrees. God doesn't judge the nations around them for not obeying the law, but He does judge the nations He has given the law to. That's Judah, that's Israel. Now, when they turn the spotlight on Israel, and the main section is going to be on Israel itself, Chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. We won't read it again. But all those things target social injustices. Yeah, see, they're exploiting the weak and the poor. Right? Taking advantage of slave girls. I think that's the whole father-son thing. It has to do with them taking advantage of slave girls within the household. Sexually taking advantage, obviously. Taking advantage of those in your debt. Taking their jackets so they have nothing to warm to even sleep in. And then flaunting it by, sleep, by using their jacket you know, when you go and worship at church. All of these things are social injustices, but they're not just social injustices randomly. They're actually the kind of things that God specifically in His law, in places like Exodus, and then again in Leviticus, and then again in Deuteronomy, He keeps talking about specific ways in which they're not to do these things. And of course, this is all the more shocking when you understand Israel's history. Because they were the weak and oppressed, yeah? They were slaves in Egypt. But God rescued them and delivered them from their oppressive enemies, and they're doing that to others. I think this is where I think the the real weight of Amos comes. If you're a Christian, you call yourself a Christian, it's true, isn't it? We have most often been like Israel in Amos' day. We look to the unbelieving world around us, often with an air of judgmentalism, and condemnation. And we miss how utterly hip- hypocritical it is when we finger point sometimes 
and the world out there. And we completely miss the plank in our own eyes. I quoted from Romans earlier. Later on in Romans 2, it says this. Now it's not talking about the world out there. It's talking about insiders. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment on the do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. See what it's saying. Every time we point one finger at the outside world, there's three fingers pointing back at ourselves. So let me ask you, you who judge your non-Christian friends for their use of bad language and swearing, do you gossip? Do you slander? You who condemn theft and robbers and shoplifters, I'd never do that. Do you steal music? Movies? Tax? That should be owed to the government that you didn't declare. You who turn in disgust at the loose sexual morality, the one night stand, the hookup culture of the world, do you look at pornography? You who despise drug addicts and gambling addicts, are you addicted to materialism? and the accumulation of stuff. You who loudly condemn wife beaters, domestic violence, are you in your marriage controlling, dictatorial, given to rage and anger? And that's why the longest words of judgment are here against God's own people. It's not just in chapter 2, it's the rest of Amos. You see, the jabs might have been directed against the nations, but the sucker punch is for Israel. So have a look at chapter 2, verse 13. This is the what. Now then I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength. The warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away. The horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. The rest of Amos will tease all of that judgment out. But you see the message clear, isn't it? God holds even more judgment for those who know more, for those who've received more grace, but still unrepentantly and persistently keep going in their sin and rebellion. This is uncomfortable for us, people of God, if you're a Christian, brothers and sisters, because Amos is a sober reminder to those not on the outside, but on the inside, people sitting right here. This morning, 
regular churchgoers. God takes sin seriously. And God takes the sin of His people most seriously. I was wondering whether to show this passage because I really don't like it. But I'm going to show it to you anyway. Hebrews 10. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know Him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. How, how many times have we taken that last verse and have just directed it at the world when actually that last verse is directed at those on the inside? You and me. And the New Testament is full of warning passages like these. Yeah, I do need to put it into context and it's not the time to do it because this raises all these questions. Right? You know, can Christians fall away and so on? And I'm not going to answer that. But I want you to know that these warning passages are there because God loves you. And God... Our loving Father wants us to see Him clearly. He's not a kitty cat. He's a lion. But He does it so that His children will hear these warnings and take heed. Friends, if you are sitting here and you have, in the words of Hebrews, we're not just talking about sin. Look what it's saying. Deliberately keep on sinning. We're talking about unrepentant sin. Sin that is not dealt with. Sin that is not apologized about. Sin that you keep hiding, keep doing, and you have no regard for changing. If that's you, and you call yourself a Christian, can I urge you today to do business with God? I don't know what that sin is, all those sins are. But I hope you see how serious it is. Do it today. My final point. When we come face to face with the lion who is ready to pounce in judgment, it's hard not to be fearful. However, while I want to say let's take these warnings seriously, and we do need to, I don't want to finish there. I don't want to finish there with our sermon on Amos this morning. There's a reason why. I don't think Amos finishes there either. See, when speaking of God's judgment day, you notice in chapter 2, verse 16, a really odd verse. Right? Even the bravest warrior will flee naked on that day. Well, that's not odd. That happens in battle. But what's odd is the one place that little verse is picked up on in the New Testament. It's, it's so random. It's so out there. If you blink, you'd miss it. Mark chapter 14 picks up on that, I think. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Where are we? This is after the Last Supper, after Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is betrayed and arrested in the middle of the night. In the panic, all of his disciples flee, and this happens. We read about some young man who's not even named fleeing naked. I think Mark was thinking of Amos chapter 2, verse 16. If that's the case, then Mark is saying the day of judgment that Amos 2.16 speaks about 
has come. The day when warriors flee naked, young men flee naked. The day of judgment has come. Oh yeah, it's, it's not just the future, it's, it's, it's come. When has it come? Well, this is the day that Jesus gets arrested. The night before Jesus gets, do you see? The day of judgment has come, but it's not guilty Israel who is going to get judged. It's Israel's Messiah, Jesus. The innocent Messiah, Jesus, who's going to get judged. The big twist in God's judgment is this, and this is why we can't just finish with judgment in Amos, is because God has himself in Jesus on the cross taken and borne our punishment, our judgment instead of us. Jesus goes as your substitute and my substitute to face the fierceness of punishment in your place so that you would never have to. And we just celebrated that a couple of weeks ago with Easter. The day of judgment came, but the big twist is it came on God's Son in our place. And that's why at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 5, we don't have time to look at it, but i just tell you, Revelation 5, John is told, the writer John is told that there's only one person who can open the scroll, and the one person who's worthy to open the scroll is the lion from the tribe of Judah. And then you see him turn around in Revelation 5, you'd expect him to see a lion, only he doesn't see a lion, he sees what? The real question. He sees, not a lion, but a lamb. And a lamb who has been slain. You see, the lion who roars in judgment against our sin is the lamb who goes willingly to bear that judgment against our sin in our place. That is the beauty of the gospel. So if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, good news for you. You will never have to face judgment if you trust in Jesus as your lamb of sacrifice in your place. Yes, God has accounted for all your sins. But you don't have to pay for them. Because Jesus was willing to pay for them on your behalf. And if you are a Christian, in light of those warning passages, can I just say, what is stopping you today from running back to the Lamb? To confess and repent of that sin that maybe up to now you've not adequately confessed and dealt with. Because your loving Father wants to receive you and forgive you for His Son, the Lamb, has already paid for us. If He's pressing something on your heart today, Christian, then do something about it and do it with confidence. Let's pray.